Good morning, everybody. Wonderful to see you and Happy New Year again. And welcome to your best year ever, part two. And uh, we began last weekend with your best year ever, part one, which is about setting noble goals. If uh, you missed that last weekend, I'd encourage you to go onto the website or the app and to listen to part one. And it just sort of sets the context. You don't need that at all to uh, uh, get anything out of our service today, but I think you would appreciate that. And we began last week by talking about Isaiah's words in Isaiah 32.8 where he wrote this. He said, the noble man makes noble plans and by noble plans he stands. Just a reminder that God encourages us to make plans, to set noble goals. And uh, that's why we talk about goals this time of year. And I asked everyone last week to determine what would make 2017 your best year ever. What would you like to see happen this coming year? If you haven't already, once you grab your sermon notes out of your bulletin or download those on your app to, to follow along, if God were to answer your top three prayer requests for this new year, what would they be? In other words, imagine a win and what it would look like for you in the new year. Would it be money left over at the end of the month and uh, completely out of debt? Would it be acing all of your uh, tests and getting A's in all of your classes? Would it be being in better shape physically and uh, health-wise and having more energy? Would it be a closer relationship to God as a result of intentional time with Him daily? Maybe something completely different. What would it look like? Jot that down on those three bullets there on your notes. See, one of the things I really enjoy about the new year is the chance to have a clean slate and to start fresh and to ask God, God, what, what do you have in mind? How, how, can, how can the goals I'm looking at for this new year honor you? What would you like me to do? And to help us with that process, I want to suggest seven steps for having your best year ever. I want to credit a fellow named Michael Hyatt for these steps. They're from his goal-setting seminar that David Pritchard introduced me to about a month ago. And I found them super helpful and a refreshing approach to setting goals this year myself. And that's why I'm sharing them with you. So one of the common questions we all face is the question of what goals should I set? And to answer that, we need to begin sort of with the end in mind. What do we want to accomplish with our life? In other words, step one is to clarify your priorities. Clarify your priorities. It's easy to get tunnel vision when we start setting goals. And by that means, just focus in on a couple of aspects of life. And then later realize, you know, that I didn't have the balance in my goals and in my thinking that I should have had. And so I'd suggest to you that you set goals in each of these three circles of life. Three circles of life. The first one is the circle of being. The circle of being refers to sort of your relationship with yourself. Because without that, you can't accomplish your other goals. It's much like the instructions you hear the flight attendant give on an airplane. If you're traveling... With a child or someone who requires assistance, secure your own mask first and then assist the other person. You need to focus first on setting goals in these 
four areas. The circle of being includes spiritual goals, physical goals, emotional goals, and intellectual goals. They'll help you become the healthy person you need to be and put you in a position where you can achieve the rest of your goals. The second circle of life is the circle of relating. And that includes goals around your marriage, your parenting, and your social relationships in life. And those are sort of self-explanatory. And the final one is called the circle of doing. And that includes your vocational goals and your financial goals and your avocational goals. An avocation is something you do in addition to your vocation, things that bring you pleasure, things like hobbies and so forth. You see, too many people start by setting goals in their circle of doing and never get around to their circle of being. And therefore, they're not really balanced and they haven't laid the proper foundation for success. I think a good rule of thumb is to set maybe seven or eight goals, but be sure to include goals in all three of these circles, all right? All three circles of life, you need to think through and set goals in all of them to find balance. That brings us to step two, which answers the question of how do I state my goals? What's the best way to write them out? And the answer is to write strong goals. Here's four attributes of strong goals. First, they need to be written goals. They need to be written down. That may sound obvious, but all too often that doesn't happen. So how many of you believe you're more likely to achieve your goals if you do write them down? You know, research shows that you're 42% more likely actually to be successful with your goals just by writing them down. And one reason is that writing helps you sort of have clarity with them, to think through them more carefully. Don't raise your hand on this one, but how many of you have written down your goals already for 2017? That's really important to your success. Second, your goals should be specific. Specific goals. A good goal is I'll read through my Bible or I'll read more of my Bible in 2017. Here's an even better goal, though. I will read through, through the Bible in 2017 by using the one-year Bible reading plan. And by the way, we ran out of the one-year Bibles that we had down in the Faith at Home Center last year, but we got another case in. If you would like to pick one up, it's not too late. But specificity matters because it makes it easier to put your aspirations into action need to be specific. A third attribute of a strong goal is that it's measurable. You can't manage what you can't measure. A good goal is I will lose weight in 2017. In fact, millions and millions of people have that one written down or in their minds at least for the new year. But here's an even better example. I will lose 10 pounds or I'll lose 20 pounds in 2017. See, that's measurable. When in doubt, always assign a number or percentage to your goal. Finally, your goal should be time-keyed. That simply means put a deadline with your goal. Everything you're doing is important. Every goal you have is probably important or you wouldn't write it down, but they're not all important at the same time. So put a deadline for each one. Deadlines help you prioritize things better. A good goal is I will lose 20 pounds this coming year. An even better goal is I'll lose 20 pounds by November 1st by losing 2 pounds per month. Put a time frame to it. And that brings us to a common question, which is how challenging should I make my goals? How much do I need to stretch in the goals I, I make? And the answer is aim for some discomfort. Aim for discomfort. Most people spend the majority of their time in the, the comfort zone, right? 
But there needs to be a little level of discomfort with at least some of the goals that we write down. And uh, Michael Hyatt suggests there's actually three zones for pursuing your goals. First is the comfort zone. That's where, that's where no-brainer goals exist. I'm going to get up every day and eat three meals a day. That's sort of a comfortable goal. Okay, that's not stretching a whole lot. Second is the discomfort zone, though. That's where breakthroughs happen in life. This is where you're relying on God or it's not going to happen. That's where you're praying about your goals and saying, God, without you intervening, I can't do this. Third is the delusional zone. That's where your goals are so unrealistic, they will never happen. If I wrote down a goal in 2017 to get in shape so I could play for the Mariners and win a pennant, that would be clearly delusional. Yeah. Amen. So... Setting goals is a bit like long-distance archery. You have to aim a little bit above the target to allow for the resistance of the arrow going through the air. If you aim right at the bullseye and just try to hit a flat shot, you're probably going to fall short. Your best chance of getting a bullseye is to aim just a little bit high of the target, and the same is true of goals. Aiming for the discomfort zone is your best bet for achieving the goals you really want, the results you want. And by the way, it's a little natural when you do that, that you're going to feel a little bit of fear and a little bit of discomfort and a little bit of doubt and uncertainty. Those are natural emotions. Learn to see those emotions as a sign that you're probably on the right path. You can adjust your goals if you set them too high, but don't be afraid to stretch yourself when you write goals. For example, one of my goals is to pray for each one of you here in our church family by name twice a month. And I do that by praying through our church directory. Everyone that fills out a communication card three times gets into our church directory. You know you're in our directory if you get emails or mail from the church. Someone came up to me last night and she said, I didn't get my picture in the church directory. Are you praying for me? And I said, yes, you're still in my, the other directory. So not to worry, okay? And that's a little bit of a stretch goal for me because I hit that about 75% of the time. I pray for 50% of the church by name every week, and I make that probably 75 or 80% of the time. So I think it's about right. There's a discomfort level. I have to push every week to make that. Step number four is identify your why. Identify the why behind the goal. And this was especially helpful new thought to me this year. Because most of us deal with the problem of motivation at some time. Our motivation to press on toward our goals sort of wanes as the year goes on. And that's why less than 50% of those who make New Year's goals have given up on them about halfway or by halfway through the year. And so the question is, if, if we set noble and godly goals, how can I stay motivated to reach them? The answer is to pursue goals that really, really matter to you. Gail Hyatt put it like this, people lose their way when they lose their why. When you write a goal, you need to ask yourself, why does this matter to me? So here's four qualities of compelling goals to keep in mind. Be sure that you find at least one of these with every goal that you write. First is, make sure it's spiritually meaningful. Spiritually meaningful means that it connects with a larger purpose. There's a spiritual component to it. Why is this important? Why is this a noble, godly goal? What, why would God want me to pursue this? 
For example, I want to be healthy so that I can live longer and be a godly influence on my kids and my grandkids. Second quality is make sure it's intellectually stimulating. It helps you grow intellectually. That's pretty self-explanatory. A third quality is that it's emotionally energizing. Some things we do just have a way of giving us joy and bringing a smile to our face. And hopefully you know yourself well enough to know what those things in your life are that energize you emotionally. And you need to fit those things into your goals. For me, one of those things is getting away with my family, fun vacations. Another one is uh, encouraging our missionaries, going on mission trips. Emotionally energizing. And the fourth quality is physically challenging. Why do millions of people run marathons and half marathons? So I, I don't understand that, but I've noticed that millions of people do that kind of thing. Why do people climb mountains and uh, jump from airplanes? Or lift weights and do uh, exercise programs? There's something in the human heart that loves to challenge ourselves physically. It sort of gives it life and gives energy to us. Make sure, what I'm saying is make sure each of your goals hit at least one of these four criteria or you're sort of setting yourself up to fail because there's not the why behind it to keep you motivated. Another common question around setting goals is how can I avoid that overwhelmed feeling? And the answer is to narrow the focus, narrow your focus of goals. One of the most common reasons we fail with goals is we have too many of them. It's very tempting to set this huge list of goals at the beginning of the year, but studies show that you can't focus on more than seven to ten items at a time. And so there's great value in narrowing the focus to just a few important goals. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, man who chases two rabbits catches neither. So I'd suggest you set just seven, eight main goals, something like that for the year, and then choose two or three of them, just two or three that you're going to be the primary ones you're focusing on, first at least. I'd suggest you start by praying over the areas of your life and ask God to impress his priorities upon your heart. Once you get those ticked off, I accomplished number one, then you can move another one up into the top two or three. But the question still remains about how to get started. And that's why step six is determine your next steps. Your first step and then the next step logical step after that, okay? One of the obstacles we face is procrastination with goals. For some people, excessive planning is sort of a form of procrastination, in fact. Zig Ziglar said, you don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. And the solution is to break your projects and to break your goals down into bite-sized pieces. For example, I set a weight loss goal recently, and for me, the first step was to go get a scale so I could figure out how much I weighed, and then to weigh myself three times a week after my workouts. If your goal is to read the Bible more, then probably the next step for you, if you haven't already, is to pick a Bible reading plan, and then to sit down and get started reading tomorrow. Okay, determine your next steps. And finally, step number seven is track your progress. How many times have you written down your goals and then never looked at them again? Or you maybe read them for the first week or two and then forgot all about them. As the old adage goes, out of sight, out of mind. So you need a plan to review them and also to track your progress on them. 
is a critical step to ensuring success. What I do is I print out my goal list and I fold it, that piece of paper and I put it in the front of my daily reading Bible. And then three times a week I, I get it out and I read it, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I also track my goals just on a little untecky, sticky note that looks like this. And uh, that's in the front of my Bible so I can keep track of how I'm doing and so I can report to my accountability partners. If you're more electronic in your approach, you might try something like Evernote. It's a system to track your goal accomplishment. Uh, it's a free tool by Google, Evernote is, and uh, some of you might find that useful. The point is, find a plan that works for you and then begin to work the plan. All right, so let's change directions now fairly sharply. Right turn to the right, okay? I want to zero in on one particular area that most people are concerned with setting goals for. And that is our financial and stewardship area. All right? If you're a guest here with us today, usually once, sometimes twice a year, we talk about finances and stewardship. Uh, that's today. You arrived on a great day. We invite you to just sit in on this little family chat, all right? And I want to start with this question. Are your finances in order? Do you have a budget and a plan for the use of your money? Are you in debt? Do you have a plan to get out of debt? Do you have stress over your finances or do you have a lot of peace over your finances? Some might even be wondering, why, why is this important for a sermon, all right? Well, I believe it's super important because Jesus talked about this so much. He highlighted it so strongly. Listen to what he said in, in Luke 16, 11. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? In other words, there's a connection with what we do with our money and our possessions and then what God trusts, entrusts to us further. Think about that. The true riches in life, those are eternal things, like making a difference with your life, like investing in people, like relationships, like leaving a legacy with your life. These are the true riches I think Jesus was talking about. And God said, I, I, I can trust you with the true riches only if, you are faithful with how you manage the resources that I give you. So this is super important. Here's another key truth that goes along with it. To experience financial peace, I must adopt God's priorities for my life. Financial peace comes along with the right priorities. First things first. Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount there, he's talking about worrying about food and, and worrying about clothing, the basic necessities of life. And Jesus is basically saying, don't worry about having the necessities of life. Put me first. Put the kingdom of God first and living for me, and I will take care of all of that stuff. How are you doing in the area of financial stress and worry? By the way, Jesus was never afraid to talk about money. Have you noticed that? In fact, he spoke about money and possessions more than any other subject, more than heaven and hell as well. He understood that there's this strong connection between our hearts and our wallets, and he constantly challenged his followers, us, to make sure that's right. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Over the years, I've recommended a lot of different resources to help people with their finances, and the one that I generally go to now is Dave Ramsey, and I'm so thankful for 
Financial Peace University, and I especially love what he calls the 70% principle of lasting wealth. I believe it's very biblical. Again, this comes right out of Financial Peace University. Here's how it goes. The first 10% of our income goes right back to God. Goes to God. For, uh, Proverbs 3 says this. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Notice that word first fruits there. Most of us aren't farmers, so that might not be perfectly clear, but what it means is the right off the top, the first 10%. Back then it was the first fruits of the herds, the first part of the harvest went right to God. All right? and the point is, don't wait till the end of the month to see what's left over. It's trust, excuse me, it's test God's faithfulness by giving him the very first 10% and let him, let him make the rest of the month work out, the rest of the budget work. And by the way, I, I do not believe what go prosperity gospel teachers use this to teach, which is you give so that God will give you more. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's unbiblical. God does bless our obedience, but not necessarily with financial prosperity here. But he always blesses our obedience. We're to give him the first 10% of all he provides. Then second, the second 10% goes to debt and to an emergency fund. God's word consistently warns us about debt and the need to get out of debt. And so that's a goal. And beyond that, to have an emergency fund in case something comes up unexpected. The third 10% goes to savings and investing. Scripture also encourages that. For example, Proverbs 13 says this, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. It's a good thing to save and to be able to invest and provide for those who come after us. Now, obviously... If we devote the first 30% of our income to these three things, we have 70% left. And the key of all of this is learning to live on the 70%. That's why it's called the 70% principle. And in case you're saying to yourself, I don't think I can do that. If you're wondering how to do that, that's where Dave Ramsey's class comes in. I strongly encourage you to go to Financial Peace University. It's a nine-week class. And we offer it here beginning on February 5th. So I asked uh, Brad Criswell if he'd share a little testimony. He's been teaching our classes. He and Melanie have been teaching them for the last year or two. This is what he said. In 2014, Melanie and I were faced with some big life changes and uncertainty with jobs. And we turned to Financial Peace University to see how we could manage our money better. Within less than a year of completing the course and earning less than we had before, we learned to lean on God to provide for us and to be content with what we had. And we found ourselves free from the $23,000 of non-mortgage debt we had when we started FPU. When FPU leaders were needed here at Lake City Community Church, we thought it would be great, a great opportunity to give back what was given to us. In 2016, we saw some amazing changes as a result of people completing FPU. Of course, the money saved and debt crushed were impressive. $63,000 of debt was eliminated and $29,000 was placed in savings during the three courses we led in 2016. Someone always had a question that stumped us. 
but the answer usually came back to whether a person really wanted to make difficult changes in their life. Each time we led the course, we found ourselves taking another hard look in the mirror because we continued to find areas that we could improve. The triumphs we witnessed were when people said things like, we are almost debt-free, or when someone steps up to lead the course because it made a difference to them and now they want to help others. Our hope is that anyone who may be struggling financially, worried about the future, or questioning where their money goes every month would at least visit the first week to see how they can find financial peace through FPU. Again, the value of FPU is it gives you a plan, a nuts and bolts plan to help you reach godly goals, to help you get out of debt, and all of that produces financial peace. Highly recommend it. Well, all of this leads to an important question that I want to sort of close with tonight or today, and that is, how can I grow as a faithful steward? When we talk about finances, we're really talking about our stewardship. And it's, not, it's quite common for people to come up to me and ask questions about this. You know, what does God expect on this? What does the Bible teach? What, what do you suggest as the next step? And so I want to answer that by surveying a few verses on this subject about growing in our stewardship. And I want to start with 2 Corinthians 8-7. And it says this, Since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and so on, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. Excel also in this gracious act of giving. That's what Paul wrote his friends in Corinth. And to excel in the grace of giving means become excellent at it. So how do we become excellent at giving, at being faithful stewards? Well, it's something we have to learn. It's something we have to develop. It's a skill we grow in. We have to stretch ourselves for it, and we do that by purposing to grow. Paul terms it a gracious act. That means we need God's help to pull this off. We can't do this on our own. Nobody honors God in their giving unless God is working in their heart. God gives us the desire and he gives us the ability to do this. But realize that to do this, to excel in the gracious act of giving, you have to aim for a little bit of discomfort. And I, I see four levels of giving. And I, the first one is the beginning level. So let's talk about those four levels. The beginning level is where you return an initial gift to God. That's where it all starts. That's how you begin to honor God with your finances. Most of you, I think, already do that. But perhaps some people need to start here. Here's what Jesus said about giving. It's recorded for us in Acts. So Dr. Luke wrote this for us. He said, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus exalted giving. It's a blessing for us, he says. The second level of giving is the systematic level. It's when we become a regular giver. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul wrote this. He said, Now about the collection for the Lord's people, on the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. On the first day of every week, that's Sunday, set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. He's talking about the weekly offering here. He's saying giving is a part of your weekly worship. 
It's not like the credits after the movie's over. It's an important act of worship we're to participate in. Two words, I think, summarize Paul's teaching here. First, our giving is to be systematic. Whenever we have income, we're to set aside part of it to, for God. Systematic. And secondly, it's to be proportional. The Bible talks about giving in proportion to or in keeping with our income. This brings us to a third level of giving, and I call it the obedience level. That's where we return the full tithe to God. So the first two levels are great places to start, but they're not really great places to stay because they're not full obedience. So the place to begin understanding this is to understand what a tithe is. A tithe, that word literally means it appears 50 times in Scripture, and it means a tenth or one-tenth. It refers to giving God the first tenth of our income. By the way, why do you think God tells us to do that? Why in the world would God tell us to tithe back to him? I mean, does he need our money? So obviously not. Why does he do that then? Let's look to scripture. This is Deuteronomy 14.23. The purpose of tithing is to teach you to put God first in your lives. God's very clear about the purpose. It's intended to train us to put him first and to keep him first. It reminds us that all we have belongs to him. He's entrusted it to us as a stewardship. It gives us perspective on life each and every time we give. It's a symbol of our dependence on him and our gratitude for all he's done for us. Let's consider another passage about tithing. This is Malachi 3.10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. You want to have no more need? He tells us here how to do that. He says, test me in this. I love the fact that God says, test him. Put me to the test. He, listen, he wants to prove to you, if you put him first, he will be faithful to meet every need you have. Trust him with your finances. And the way you do that is to start giving back to him the full tithe, he says here. Bring the first 10% to him and let him prove his faithfulness to meet you in your needs. So here's a suggestion I typically give in January, and that is, if you aren't already tithing, why don't you just try a four-month tithe challenge? Do what God says here and test him for four months. See if it doesn't help you get your finances in order. See if it doesn't lead to more financial peace. And I say four months because it usually takes about that long to sort of get it all figured out and work things out, to begin paying off debt, to begin learning not to depend on the credit card to make your finances work. And so my challenge is just to say to God, God, with your help, I will be obedient to your word and give the full tithe. Please help me. Now, sometimes people ask me, why do you believe tithing is still for today? I read mostly about that in the Old Testament. 
There's actually many reasons, and I've taught on that before, but to summarize, one of, the, one of the strongest ones is what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 23. Here's what Christ taught. He said, you should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. He says there's more important things than that, but it's still an important thing. Still do it. One more level of giving that I want to consider with you, and that's what I call peak level giving. That's where we learn to become a generous giver. See, the Bible speaks of tithes, but it also speaks of offerings, free will or voluntary offerings. And that's when we give to God over and above the tithe. This means that God wants to grow us in our giving so that we go beyond just the minimum. It means he wants to develop in each of us as his children a heart of generosity that's like Jesus. So that we're more and more like his son, more Christ-like. Here's how Paul wrote about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. That's a good word, that generous word. All right? It's where we're giving to things over and above the tithe. Things like missionary support and benevolent fund and transform building fund and parachurch ministries and so on. And one of the things I so appreciate about you as a church family is your generosity. I hear about all that you do, maybe not by name, but as a church I see your generosity on display toward one another and also toward outside things all the time. For example, just this past weekend, uh, we hit the $700,000 mark in our Transform Building Fund because of your generosity. And I want to say thank you and well done. Amen. Amen. Well done and keep up the good work. That's excelling in the grace of giving. Question. We've talked about four levels of giving. If you were to pick the level that best identifies your own giving, where would it be? Put a little X by one of those. And I think this is important because one of the observations I've made is that people who are at the obedience level or the peak giving level are less likely to be in debt and much more likely to have financial peace in their life. And so my challenge to you today is to set a goal this new year to excel in the grace of giving. And to ask yourself the question, what steps do I need to take for that to happen? Let's talk about some next steps, some application points. These aren't on your notes, so you'll have to write them in if you want to remember them. Number one is write or refine your 2017 goals. Set aside some time today or later this week to write down your goals for the new year. Maybe uh, make a date. If you're married, make a date with your spouse. We're going to pray over our goals and get them on paper this week. If you've already done that, well done. Good job. Next, I'd suggest you work through the process of refining them a bit. Make them strong goals, in other words. Identify your why. Write down the whys associated with them. Your top ones. Maybe some next steps. Maybe how you're going to track them. So on. Refine. Write and refine your goals for 2017. Next step two is sign up for Financial Peace University. If you're making financial goals, I suggest this as the best way to get the nuts and bolts into place. Just a nine-week class called Financial Peace University beginning on 
on February 5th at Sundays at 10 o'clock here on our campus. Next step three is sign up for a small group. Fill out the slip of paper in the small group catalog or stop by the table in the foyer or go online, but choose today. I'm gonna to be in a small group for this next season. I'm gonna be connected in community so I make sure I'm growing, so I can be an encouragement to others to grow. Sign up for a small group. And next step four, take the next step in your stewardship. Wherever you think you are in those levels of giving, why not ask God to help you take the next step to grow in your stewardship? That would be a great and a noble goal. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gracious gifts in our lives. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness in Jesus. Thank you for sending your only son to die in our place, to take our sins to the cross, that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. And Lord, we've been talking about a lot of things this morning, but it's really useless unless we've first taken that step of faith to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. And so, Father, thank you for that gift. And friend, if you're here today and you've not taken that step, I have an invitation prayer I want to offer for you. I invite you to silently pray in your heart of hearts to receive Christ's forgiveness today. Just say something like this to God. Father, I want and need your forgiveness. I confess today I can't earn it by the good things I do or by trying to be religious, but I receive it by faith today in Jesus and his death and resurrection for me. I repent of my sin. I invite Jesus in to forgive me and take over. And I thank you today for that wonderful gift. We all thank you, Lord, for that amazing gift of forgiveness and life. And as we sang a few minutes ago, you have made us new. Now life begins with you. As we start a brand new year, Father, please help us to put off the old man and to put on the new with your help. Help us in thinking through the year and setting noble goals, godly goals that glorify you. Help us to put first things first. We need your help. We need your spirit's guidance and empowerment. And we pray for that in the strong name of Jesus Christ. And everybody agreed and said, amen.